Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 2. Good God, y'all! I'm really sorry. Let's get this show on the road. (laughs) I love this episode title, and... It surprisingly didn't spoil me. Really? Okay, that's good. That's amazing. Like, I was wondering, like, what a weird title, and I was trying to figure out, I think, I think the y'all caught me off guard so much. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's for Rufus. Y- you know what? I, to me, it was more of a, who's in this episode? All of them. All of them. That's true. Everyone is there. Like, it's such a nice reunion. Like, I... It's such a good reunion, but it's so, like, you don't get enough time with everyone. I think that's the issue when they do those big things where, like, there's a lot of people. Like, you just wish you could spend a bit more time with each and every one of them. I agree. Yeah, like, Ellen definitely got some spotlight here. I think Rufus, even though because it's his whole thing, gets some spotlight. But Joe really felt, like, underused and, like, ugh. And she's the one I want the most from, so... I agree. But hold on. Before we start, we sort of wanted to remind everybody that our pins are now available on our coffee shop. And honestly, like, we're just so blown away by the response. And we just wanted to thank everybody who has purchased one. Uh, Every single sale basically lights up our hearts. And you can find all the details on our website, carryingwayward.com. And my offer still stands. If I see someone live wearing one who doesn't work on the show, there'll be surprises. <laughs> That's amazing. Would you like to surprise us with a recap? I sure will. Three, two, one, go. Boys are with Bobby, and Bobby is in a wheelchair, and it's really sad. But then Cash shows up, and Bobby's all like, You better fix them legs. And Cash is like, Yeah, it turns out I don't have powers anymore. I mean, I have some powers, but not all my powers, kind of like, you know, as the writers determine I need them or not. Uh, but I can't help you. Too bad. Also, God's real, and I'm going to go find him, but I need a magical device that would let me find him conveniently Dean's been wearing it this entire time. Anyways, they get a mysterious call from Rufus. This town's infested with demons. They get there. They find Ellen. So now we've got, and Joe's apparently there, but she's missing. And it's crazy. And they got a bunch of survivors hiding. And these demons are fighting them. And then the other demons kind of attack them. But it seems something's not right. And then it turns out there's no demons. There's just one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse war. And they cut his finger off and save the day. And then, then Sam leaves. And then they break up. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. It really felt like last episode in that parking lot, that final like talk they had. It felt like they were separating. You're the only person that I've heard who says that. I, Nobody else thought that. Everyone, <laughs> everyone pause the episode now unless you're not near a computer or you're out driving or you're ever a walk. Like if, you're, if you're in your home and have access to a computer, pause now and go watch the final confrontation from the first episode of this season. And literally, it's the two of them in a parking lot of the motel and Dean goes like, whatever his line is about that they can't trust each other and they can't work together anymore and then he like turns away and starts walking towards the car and the camera like, he doesn't out. say he doesn't say that they can't work together anymore he says that things can't be the same as they were before which is a whole different thing 
Like, imagine leaving Sam in a motel parking lot. Like, that is a jerk move. Not as much as starting the apocalypse. <laughs> if we're keeping score. If we're keeping score, which obviously we're not. But One point for ditching. Three <laughs> points for apocalypse? Maybe four. Maybe. They actually have their breakup this time, which is much well, m- much more of a, a production and worth it. We hear Sam say Castiel instead of like Castiel. And it almost feels as if like he's heard Dean refer to him so often as Cass that he doesn't really actually know how to pronounce the latter half of his name. And honestly, like that just really cracks me up. So I saw this note and I had to go back and watch it again. And like it didn't hit me right away. But it is, so, I, I don't know why it just didn't phase me, but now now that I know and listen to it, it's super funny. It really feels like that moment where you like, you, I, I can't think of a good example where you like shorten somebody's name and then realize you shouldn't be doing it in that situation. So you add the rest later as like a, as like an afterthought. You're like, oh, it's John Nathan. Like, <laughs> I, we're in a professional setting. I have to use your full name. Jonathan. I can't call you John. Castiel. <laughs> Because I always found the way he said Castiel very weird. Like, he put such an emphasis on the L at the end that it really sounded like he was, like, trying something. It was weird. Like It was definitely a weird pronunciation and a departure from everything, from basically every other pronunciation that we've heard in on the show. Like, whether that's through Cass himself, through Dean, through uh, Zachariah, or Uriel, or even Anna. Like, nobody has pronounced Cass's name Castiel. It weirdly feels more natural, and I think that's why it didn't hit me right away. Oh my god, who are you? It's like I don't know you anymore. So when Cass does end up showing up at the hospital, he explains that, like, the sigils that are hiding the brothers from the angels are also hiding them from him. And that he simply won't be able to just, and he stops. And honestly, like, able to just what, Cass? To, like, show up on Dean's motel bed like you've done before? (laughs) I'm sure that won't be the last time he does. Well, no, he can't find him anymore. Yeah, he'll find a way. But also in this same scene, can I just have a moment and discuss, I don't think I can imagine even here in Canada where healthcare is much more covered that you could just walk into a hospital and go, I feel fine. Can you do a full body x-ray real quick to check my ribs? No, but that I think like he sort of like somehow finds a way or bribes somebody to do that for him, right? Have you watched this episode? <laughs> True. He definitely bribed somebody or like flirted with some male nurse or just found the machine and did it himself. I, that's not quite how it works. but <laughs> I, I would not put it past Dean. <laughs> Sure, maybe he's taken a whole radiography class in his uh, sometime, whenever, after getting his GED. The next thing that I sort of wanted to, to like talk about is that Cass saying that he's going to find God genuinely has the same vibes to me as like, dad's been on a hunting trip. Like, it's Cass's turn to look for his dad. There is a lot of similarities here, and I'm very worried to see where the show takes those. We also find out that the Samulet is actually, as Sam calls it, a god EMF. Right. I I thought that that was really funny. And it kind of helped, like, 
break the tension with Sam too, I think. So I think that that was like really well done. Now, the production story behind that is that Jensen Ackles had been asking to get rid of it for some time because it was like literally constantly hitting him in the face during fight scenes. And eventually like it chipped one of his teeth. So it had to go. Does it ever come back? I mean, it has a role because now Cass is using it. So it comes back in that sense. But like he doesn't wear it anymore. Like I can't picture Dean without it. But clearly there's been more images of him without it, I'm guessing, because just given that this is season four of 15, that leaves 11 seasons of not wearing it that I just never really noticed. I think that it's also interesting that, like, Dean, the righteous man, was the one wearing something that could show where God is. That tracks. And I'm just going to say they're on the damn bridge. And if you know, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I hope everyone else does. Or doesn't? I don't know. <laughs> Most people will know, but they're on the damn bridge. And it just enraged me when I saw it. If only it could have stayed in that state of destruction, it would have been great. And like you said, Rufus, Ellen, and Joe are back, and that is a lot of fun. Okay, but almost more excitingly, we get to meet, like, one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Like, this is one of those, like... The Four Horsemen are one of those mythological, like, concepts that I've just been so in love with. I don't know what it is about them, but I just feel like the best stories come from them. Like, I, 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 I'm like, I don't want you to spoil it for me, but, like, do we at least meet all four of them this season? I mean, this is Chekhov's gun, right? Like, they're talking about the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and we meet War in Episode 2. So... I'll say that much. Like, my fear is, like, that we're only going to get war up until, like, partway through. Then maybe we'll get, like, Pestilence. And then, like, next season, like, they're going to draw it out too long. Like, I want all four of them, like, by the end of the season as, like, one big awesome fight. I mean, realistically, Supernatural doesn't really tend to draw out uh, any kind of conflict that is not related to the brothers out that long. You know, everything else that has, you know, meta plot kind of tends to be resolved very quickly, sometimes a little too quickly, in my opinion. All this to say, I'm probably going to get my wish, and I'm very excited for this. You can hold your breath. You won't have to hold it for too, for too long. <gasps> but don't actually do it. <laughs> no, because we have to go to story time. Today, our theme is perception. Do we have an origin for this word? It comes from a Latin root, which means to take entirely, or to seize or to understand. This is a theme that's particularly important to me, especially because of my research work, because I, I basically research people's perceptions of the world around them and their understandings of themselves, of the world, and everything else, basically. That is almost entirely dependent on their perspective and their experiences. And that's not to say that perceptions are wrong, obviously, like that's not what I'm saying, but that subjectivity really plays a role, uh, even when we're really trying to be objective. We can't be completely objective. And I think that this episode shows that perfectly, because the monster of the week, war, basically plays with people's perceptions of others in order to pit them against one another. Yeah, I think perception makes a lot of sense this week. And I think it's like when I first read perception, my brain right away went to like how we perceive things. But you're right. It's also how we are perceived and how it almost works. We're like 
people's perception of you can affect the way you perceive it, it goes both ways. And I think with that like lens, uh, continuing the weird vision metaphors, uh, it really colored my, uh, my, my thoughts on the everyone this week. Do you want to get us started on Cass this week? Because he's mostly at the beginning of the episode. Cass is incredibly like calm this week. Put anyone else in those shoes of like, you were dead. Now you're back. You've lost everyone you had a connection with, the family, your home. And all you have now is, I mean, Sam and Dean, not the worst people to be stuck with. But I mean, at the same time, they got their problems. And I guess Bobby, but Bobby's not really a big fan of Cass right now, especially after the bad news. And despite all of these changes to Cass and for Cass, his perceptions, while they have shifted from how he views humans to how he views, you know, what is right versus what is wrong, or more explicitly, heaven in this case, his ideals haven't changed, his goals haven't changed. Which I think is important, too, because it's it's so easy to assume, like, oh, you've changed perceptions, that means everything's changed, but it also could be changing your point of view on the same target, if that makes sense. So in this case, we've got, yeah, no, no, heaven, totally bad, I'm done with them. Sam and Dean, humans, you guys are in the right. God? Oh, yeah, no, God is still the ultimate good, and I need to go find him because he'll save the day, and he's the reason I'm still alive, even though I don't believe in the other stuff he did and made up. I mean, he's going through his own crisis of faith, I think, kind of the same way that Dean was going through his own crisis of faith in season one. That's kind of how I'm looking at it anyway. And really, I think that Cass is seeing like the world around him crumble, like to kind of go more into that aspect of it. You know, the apocalypse is literally happening. His whole value and belief system is turned around. And he's basically now working like with two flannel clad Americans instead of like heaven and the angels. Like Cass is just going through so much and I think it makes sense to me that he's looking for a higher power, like a bigger meaning. And for him, that's God. Because, you know, what is bigger than an angel? It's it's God. And that really reminds me of Sam and Dean's arc in season one, like I was saying, where their own worlds were crumbling and they're looking for John. And Dean makes fun of Cass for it because he knows what it's like to look for somebody who doesn't want to be found. And I think it's important to remember that he also has information from Zachariah in Lucifer Rising, who told him, you know, God has left the building. So anyway, I think that Cass's perceptions of the situation, which to him must be feeling so dire that nothing can fix it except for God. Like he's sort of pushing, this whole thing is pushing him to go and literally look for God. And to tie this back to what I said earlier about subjectivity, Cass is trying to be objective about it, saying that with God's help, they can win. It's strategic. But I don't know if that's truly what's at play here. Yeah, it feels like one of those like, oh, yeah, we have to find God because that's the answer to all of this. But it's also just the only thing I know how to do right now is look for someone who can clean up this mess. Again, like I say, I feel like it's almost said matter of factly that like, oh, God is the one who saved them from Lucifer's arrival and, you know, brought back Cass. But like, do we have any evidence of this other than Cass's I have a feeling? Part of my prediction was it was probably God. So I'm on board with Cass agreeing with me, but we still don't know. This is him like assuming he knows the answer because it's what he's always known. 
And now he's just going to go and hope he was right. Yeah, Cass is going through it. Like, Cass. <laughs> oh, Cass. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you like to give us your thoughts about Sam? I found it really hard to write about Sam until we kind of got to the idea that perception does go both ways. Because he's really facing an optics issue, which just sounds like a fancy way of saying like a celebrity's having a PR disaster right now. <laughs> it kind of makes sense. The reality is right now that Sam has always sort of seen himself a certain way. He's always perceived himself as this hero, this chosen one. I mean, it's been his his defining, I guess, whether you want to say characteristic or flaw up to this point. And in the last little while, Bobby and Dean have been very like, no, no, you're not. Like, there's there's something else at play here. You're not the main character. Like, there's there's stuff going on that we need to think about. And you need to take a step back and, like look at the big picture and not just let yourself, even though you think you're looking at the big picture. And it's almost like between last week and this week, he's finally really seeing that. Again, I think that he started to see it last week. Well, that's it. I think last week he started and then this week his attempt to like get away from Dean and be like, I'm a big boy. I don't need you by my side. I can go to the, you know, little store myself and collect some salt. And then, being confronted with what he assumed was demon blood at the moment and being like, oh my god, look at me. This is what they've been seeing. Like, he's finally clear-headed enough to see himself the way they've seen him this whole time. I, I think it finally that's what finally breaks him. I mean, he, he fully admits it by the end of the episode, but, like, that is really, like, the perception of him is finally aligned with those of the people around him who have been trying to take care of him. Right. It's like a mirror-shattering moment, I find, where it's like, oh man, like, this is... This is what I look like right now. This is me in this moment in time. Yeah, fully. Yeah, like he's confronted with his perception of himself and particularly with Dean's perception of him. Like he started dealing with like external perceptions uh, of, of him in the last episode with Bobby, with Dean, with the angels as well. But like this time he's really having to like really look at himself and transform the way that he thinks of himself given that new image as well and I really think that for him like you said the key moment is when he's in the little grocery store which I almost called a depreneur by the way <laughs> and for folks who don't know what that is um, and that's probably most of you it's basically a very small grocery store often but not always attached to a gas station and that's what we call those in Quebec the depreneur or the dep but I have it around the corner of my house. It's my local dep. I go when I need, like, you know, a slushy or uh, so, some chips. So just before Sam goes into the dep, uh, Dean doesn't really want to let him go alone. And Sam is like, well, can we at least do this like professionals? And this line shows two things to me. First, that Sam still sees himself as a hunter. And two, that he recognizes that, like, the bond of brotherhood is damaged. And so he's appealing to their bond as hunters or as colleagues. Oh, that kind of actually fixes something for me because I had a weird like discrepancy from last week to this week. And it's the shift in Sam's attitude. Like last week, it felt like Sam was like just looking for any excuse to people, please. He was like, Dean could have said anything and he would have been like, yes, sir, boss. I'm on it, boss. How high should I jump, boss? And then this week, it feels very different. And I think you're right. I think it's the, that hits the nail on the head. He has given up on appealing to Dean's brother side and is now trying to appeal to his professional hunter side. 
After he kills the demons, or what he thinks are demons at that time, I think that's really when his perception of himself is truly shaken. Because in that moment, like he's wondering if he can really be a hunter anymore. And obviously at the end of the episode, when they have their talk, he tells Dean that like he doesn't trust himself. And he's realizing that he misses the feeling of strength and control that he felt when he was drinking demon blood. And basically like, basically he's got some stuff to unpack for himself and how far he takes things. And I don't think he feels like he can be a hunter in these circumstances. And that's why he decides to walk away. And like, it's a heartbreaking moment. Like there's no arguing that, but you know what? I think it's the most, it's one of the most mature moments we've had on the show in a while of not just going, here's my issue. Let's put it on the table, never deal with it and move on. This is very like, no, I need to walk away. And there's no like, definitive plan or like set amount of time it is very much a like i just need to walk away for now i legit think that this was probably like the most growth that we've seen in the past four seasons together for both of them like even even the way dean like handles it like we'll get to dean in a second but even the way dean handles it it's like well can i get us started on dean actually please Okay, so last week uh, we talked about how Dean usually needs time before he can process big feelings and big emotions and that the brothers were headed for a tough time. Well, we're there. And again, to be clear, like, I don't think that them spending time apart is a bad thing. Like, I think that it's a really, really good thing. I think that for Dean, like, his major shift in perception is like, of his own role towards Sam because his perception of Sam has been shifting like pretty significantly over the last season or half season at the very least. But I think maybe now he's realizing that he can't always be his brother's keeper and that what John asked or like basically demanded of him for all those years was just not possible. Like he can't be entirely responsible for Sam. Sam has to be responsible for Sam. And I think that that's why he quote unquote, like, let's Sam go at the end of the episode. And that's why I think that it was a really good decision for the both of them. Yeah, I, you're right. I think this is so much more on Dean this week. Like I feel like last week he was also kind of a secondary character. We said he didn't really have as much to do. This really felt like Sam's arc to like self-discovery, but a big part of that is Dean's change in perspective and realizing that, like you said, he can't be his brother's keeper. Like, you can do as much as you can do for someone, but if somebody is actively trying against you or actively rebelling, you're done. You know, Dean is completely forced to not just reevaluate how to take care of Sam, but even just his relationship with his brother. And, I mean, it's it's clear they come to the same conclusion. I, I feel like even though I misinterpreted the lines last week of Dean's final words, I think it comes to fruition here when they both kind of agree as much as Sam admits it, they need some space. And like, we know Dean, Dean is hard headed. Dean is not one to talk about emotions, but Dean is still hard headed. And to just let Sam go with little to no argument. Like he offers the Impala is like the biggest push he makes and not even like a, I'm fighting for you. Just like, I'd want you to have it to be safer, almost. 
but like that like, he's come to the same conclusion. He just couldn't put say it say it out loud. He couldn't. He didn't want to throw his brother out. But when his brother offered to leave, he was like, yeah, that's the best choice. That was the right move. And I think that it's such a a stark contrast with what we saw in like the when the Levy breaks, where, you know, like he was willing to like basically kill Sam in that demon proof basement so long as Sam wouldn't go out and drink demon blood. And now Dean is like, yeah, just go. You do you. I'll do me. We need some time. But it comes back to what you said about uh, John's parting words to Dean. Uh, If you can't protect him, you have to kill him. That's what he was enacting when he had Sam locked in the basement. And now he's finally let go of that really stupid concept from John and is able to, as he let go of that thought, let go of Sam. Mm -hmm. And did you notice also that like, and that's something that we didn't talk about when we did that episode, but I heard it mentioned on Monster of the Week and I absolutely have to bring it up. But like when, when they have the fight in the motel room and that's on like when the Levy breaks, Dean says to Sam the exact same thing that John said to Sam the night he left for Stanford. Oh shit. Yeah, he said, if you walk out that door, don't you ever come back. And basically, that's exactly what John said to Sam the night he left for Stanford. And the reason why I bring this up is because this time, like, there's no ultimatum. It's just like, we're parting ways, and that's okay. And that's that's why I think that this is just, you know, like, of course, it's sad because, like, they're not going to be together together, like, in this moment. But it's just kind of nice to... Let them be who they are separately a little bit. I like that. On this surprisingly happy thought at the end of story time, shall we move to critical time? Who was behind this episode? Because again, this was another really good episode and bringing back some favorites like... Yeah, well, so this was written by Sarah Gamble and directed by Robert Singer. So we've got some pretty heavy hitters again uh, to start off this season with a bang. There you go. Like these are these are seasoned writer and director combo. They know what they're doing. They're going to do a good job. And I mean, they did. Would you like to read us an entry of the Hunter's Journal? I'd love to. Hi, everyone. Before we dive into the Hunter's Journal today, just a little bit of a content warning. There will be the sound of fake gunshots during this recording. If that's not something you're okay with, feel free to skip this section today or listen to it another time. What matters most is you. Thank you. It was a cold, crisp morning. The trenches were as frigid as ever. Men, much too young and many undertrained, stood around, their rifles held close to their chests like a child with a favored blankie. We'd seen no movement from the other side for a few days. But no matter how you cut it, it never helps. Either it's, they'll be back any second now, or it's, we've been quiet for too long, it must be a trap. Unfortunately, today was not as quiet as we had prayed. The sound of gunfire and artillery struck up. My squad moved forward. We found cover in the abandoned town nearby and watched for the enemy. My ears were ringing. I pulled myself from the rubble and I looked around. I was their leader. My first instinct was always to look out for my men. But it's hard to call yourself a leader with no one to follow you. 
It took no time at all to see I was alone. I couldn't identify any of my brothers, but I could tell no one could have survived this. I could not have survived this. The buildings around us were leveled. This was not something anyone could walk away from. But here I stood. I began to walk. I don't know to where, but I felt like it was the only thing to do. I walked through the gunfire, the battalions, the corpses, the sadness, fear, anger. I don't know how long I had been walking, but when I stopped, I only noticed two things. I was no longer in the midst of war, but rather almost completely alone. Which brings me to the second thing I noticed. Before me lingered a grim visage of a robed figure upon a red horse. <laughs> I told you, I really like the horseman. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I can only imagine what you're going to write about the other ones. Interesting. Oh, I hope I can keep a common theme or thread between them. Uh, but to shift away from my slightly darker than average story, do you have any thoughts for this week to share with us? Well, I'd like us to do a close reading of a specific line of Cass's dialogue. So please indulge me because there's a lot of things we could talk about in this episode, but I chose this one. I'm ready. Let's go. All right. So the line is, I'm hunted. I rebelled and I did it. All of it for you. And you failed. Uh, okay. Yeah, I figured this line would come up again at some point. Of course, of course it would. So you might think that, like, this is directed at both Sam and Dean. I'm sorry, did people think that? Oh, yes, people think that. Um, but I would obviously argue that it's not. It's directed solely at Dean. Because the next line is, you and your brother destroyed the world. So Cass didn't do it all for the Winchester brothers. He did it all for Dean. And even the way that the scene is blocked, like meaning what's shown in the shots, like we have some very tight close-ups of Dean and Cass, and that's usually used to show really intense emotion, emotional intimacy, like that kind of thing. So you almost forget that like Sam and Bobby are also there watching this happen. And by this, I mean like Cass getting all up close to Dean to tell him, I did it all for you. Yeah, I almost forgot the last three words of that sentence, the and you failed. I just heard the I did it all of it for you. I mean, I think a lot of people just stopped listening after that. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> I'm not even humoring you. I'm not like playing into anything. I legitimately saw that scene and through just the show itself was one million percent sure Cass was talking solely to Dean. I really think so, like I said, because the whole, like, I did it all for you, you and your brother destroyed the world. Like, how can you possibly, otherwise it would be you destroyed the world, or like there would be like a blocking, a different blocking of the scene where you would see Cass and then Sam and Dean. But for a second, you completely forget. It's basically like the world around them doesn't matter anymore. Like they are the only two people in the world talking to each other inches away from each other's face yeah no like even without the extra bits of detail that very clearly like fill it like fill into this and add to it the line alone was enough for me to go like yeah you dean you fucked up well now that Cass has spoken very directly to dean shall we see what our listeners say directly to us <laughs> i think that's a great idea <laughs> 
This week, we have a message from Kayla. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, how does Bobby perceive the conflict between the brothers? For our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk. Hi, Drew and Marie. It's Kayla again. Starting to feel like I send you a lot of voicemails. But I have another one. You recently asked us the question of how we view the difference between faith and fanaticism. And oh boy, I have thoughts. I, at almost 24 years old, have been a devout follower of the Christian religion my whole life. And I definitely think there is a very distinct difference between how I see my faith and how I see my fandoms or my fanaticisms, as fan is a short for fanatic. To me, it all comes down to a very simple statement. And that is, my fandoms are something that I hold And my faith is what holds me. When I think of fandom, when I think of fanaticism, despite it, you know, it is very real and it is very deep. At the end of the day, it is often shallow. It is based on something created that is meant for entertainment purposes. And my faith is very deep. It's something that I've devoted my life to. It's structured. It's something that builds me up. And it's something that I don't ever want to let go of. Whereas when it comes to fandoms and things that you can be fanatical about or a fan of, they can easily be discarded. I know multiple people will jump between fandoms and be fans of multiple things. Whereas with my faith, I could never imagine doing that. And... My faith really, it comes down to the fact of how serious it is to me. At the end of the day, I could easily give up any of my fandoms. But giving up my faith is something that's unthinkable to me. And the line comes in the level of devotion that you give it. Fanaticism is something that you do without thought. You are acting purely on emotion. And often when it comes to my fandoms, it is that it's emotional driven. This show made me feel something. That character made me feel something. Whereas my faith, there is emotion in it, but it is driven by something much deeper than simply emotions. It's driven by a want for something more. And I think really the difference comes in how they've affected me. My fandoms make me, you know, they give me the warm and fuzzies, but they're not something I turn to when I desperately need something. Whereas my faith despite not always being the answers that I want, does always end up being the answers that I need. I I don't really know how to define it other than, like I said at the beginning, my fandoms are something that I simply hold on to and I'm willing to let go of. And my faith is what holds me and holds me together when everything around me is falling apart. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I'm sorry this is a little long and I... Hope to speak with y'all again soon. Bye. Kayla, thank you so much for this lovely, lovely, lovely voicemail. Thank you for sharing what faith means to you and what fanaticism means to you. 
I'm always kind of amazed when I hear people talk about their faith because it's it's something that I don't experience and I think I've been pretty clear about that. So I really appreciate you taking the time to explain that to us. I find it interesting that you equated fandom with fanaticism because I don't think it's something that I would have necessarily done right away because fanaticism doesn't only mean for fandoms. It can also mean like fanatic beliefs. So I, I just find that really interesting in the, 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 the back and forth between the two and how they each have their own in your life, their own space in your life, I guess. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, Kayla, this was a really interesting listen. Uh, again, as someone else who does not have a very faith-filled background, as much as I grew up in the Jewish faith and I did go to Hebrew school as that's a topic for another day. Uh, they were they were not the most well put together programs. Nothing against like the religion as a whole, but just like it was an after school program for a bunch of Jewish kids. It wasn't the most well thought out thing. I learned the same thing every year repeatedly. I digress, but I do like, and I think it was if I'm paraphrasing correctly here, it was the fandom is something that you hold, and your faith is something that holds you, and being able to put things in those perspectives for yourself, I think is just a really amazing way to kind of view things. And like it, it for someone who doesn't have a faith, but still feels held and loved it, it. It was a very vivid metaphor for me. And I really like, it really like lit me up a little bit as you said it. It's a lot to take in. Sorry. Like, I'm just like, I'm reeling with the ideas of like, this is a conversation I love having because it's something I don't have a connection to. So hearing it brought up and being able to share it in a way that makes it sound comforting and good is just really, it fills my heart. I think what I find particularly interesting, and I don't know if you experience it the same way, but like, I find that when people talk about their faith, they talk, they talk about it as if it's something that makes them whole almost or holy. I don't know, you know, like, and it's, it's not something that I miss. I feel whole without it. And so to see what makes other people whole is always really fascinating to me. Oh my God, this this really could go off the rails into like a conversation for way too many hours. This is a subject that despite not having it, it's something I find so interesting to discuss. So to anyone, also to address another point you made very early on in your voicemail, do not feel bad sending us multiple voicemails. We love hearing repeat listeners. Like, it builds a bond. It builds like a, like, we kind of like have a narrative with each of our listeners who do send in multiple voicemails that we kind of like, not that we know what to expect, but we kind of have like a, we have a theme going or we have like a different like relationship with, I don't know. It just, don't apologize. We love it. Keep going. <laughs> it's the whole point of conversation, right? That back and forth. I think I'm ready to reflect on this episode, aren't you? Yes. I have a very um, annoying reflection. I've held off discussing this up until this point. But my reflection has to do with the fact there is a major plot hole in this episode. Like, the episode was spoiled for me mid-episode when something happened and I went, Oh, they're clearly not demons. I don't think that was a plot hole, though, honey. I think that was on purpose. <laughs> I mean, when they revealed it, not when Sam kills those first two demon, air quote, demons in the corner store. But that's the point, so that viewers know that something is amiss. 
do they not have a magical knife that kills demons? Yes. Sam is like in the middle of an existential crisis about demon blood. Do you really think that he's going to notice that the demon didn't like Edison itself? Okay, maybe, maybe, but I still feel like killing demons for as long as they have with the knife, even with that sudden, like, moment with the blood, even just the first time you stabbed one of them going like, why aren't they doing the demon glowy thing? But that, I think that to me that shows how blasé he is about it and like how, like, his mind is completely somewhere else in that moment. Okay, so maybe it's not a plot hole. I'll give you that one. <laughs> I think it's very carefully crafted, Drew. <laughs> like, I even had a moment going like, is that the demon knife? Or is that just another knife that is just similar in look? Like, No, you're clearly seeing it. Like, that's... <laughs> Did you watch this episode? <laughs> I, that's why I was so confused. Like, I, I, it felt like a plot hole. Uh, maybe I just took completely misread that moment. I'm having a weird thing with misreading odd moments in the show this season. I know. <laughs> maybe you need to watch them twice, because honestly. <laughs> so what's your reflection? What's your so call to my action? My reflection is, is that sometimes the simplest solution is the right solution. So maybe watching the episode twice is the simplest solution for you. It should be your call to action, my dear. There we go. My call to action is to pay more attention when I watch these, apparently. I don't know why. When I saw, well, I, I, sitting here, I'm thinking like, they have a magical knife that kills demons. How do they not use it on someone and then realize, wait, these aren't demons? I completely agree with you. Again, I think that story-wise, this indicates to us that Sam is not in his right mind. Because Dean didn't see it, right? Only Sam saw it. And Sam was so taken by the idea of seeing demon blood again that he wasn't thinking about anything else. And I think that, again, like that shows... One, that his addiction was real and that he is he can't be a hunter right now because he doesn't pay attention to those little things because he's preoccupied with something else. I will completely accept this reality as being what was in, was implied and I probably should have seen. But if any listener out there also had a moment where they go, yeah, why didn't the demon knife do its demon magic -y thing? And why did nobody notice that? And was even remotely on my side for this one? Like, as much as I admit I'm probably wrong, was I alone in this? But like I said, in a world where you have a magic tool that is specifically used on demons and you don't use it in some way to help figure out what's going on when things seem weird, it felt like one of those, we have the magic key, but let's forget about it this week because it ruins the plot. And to me, like that, that call to action to myself is that sometimes you overthink things or you you play with so many factors, you forget to look for the simplest solution. And sometimes the simplest solution is the right solution. I really think that this works with your whole experience with this episode, that sometimes it's not that they weren't using the demon knife. It's that they were, but something else was going on. So ironically, I did not do what I said I should call to action, which is find the simple solution and instead assumed it was a plot hole when the simple solution was good writing. Bingo. Yeah, what's yours this week? I'm I'm just I'm my brain is dead. <laughs> so this episode reminds me that distance is good and that walking away is not always a bad thing. Quitting things can be very liberating. 
And obviously, like, Sam is in quitting hunting forever, or otherwise the show would turn out quite differently. Uh, but I think that my call to action is to quit something. Like, quit something that doesn't serve me anymore. We, we've had this conversation before of the whole, like, we were raised, at least my, I feel like our generation was raised with a very, like, no quitters type of attitude. Like... If you like, if you sign up for soccer practice, you better go to every game. There's no quitting. You want to do this, but like to sign up for a class and then realize it's not for you, and rather than suffer through it and have your grades damaged and like put extra work on yourself that you're not even enjoying, and like ultimately come out less for it, or drop the damn class. Right. Like exactly. snaps for you. Yes. <laughs> there you go. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Kayla for her message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at Carrying Wayward. And leave us a rating and review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. We also want to remind you that Drew and I... Oops. I'm going to have to take that again. Give me a moment.